You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Welcome to Reclaiming Patriotism. I'm Ken Harbaugh. This week, we turn our attention to dissent. Our nation began as an act of protest, and to this day, patriotism cannot exist without it. A lot of people would say patriotism may be my country right or wrong, and I don't, I wouldn't subscribe to that. You're either a bully or you're not. Patriots, a lot of them, they want to conquer something. You know, instead of just sitting back being a people, people-minded individual. I'm still an American and I still love this country, but I wish things would change. I mean, that's part of what it means to be American, is to be able to voice your opinion and create change. That's what it's about. America's origins are rooted in dissent. We have a rich history of fighting back when our values are under threat. As Mark Twain said, patriotism is supporting your country all the time and your government when it deserves it. Colin Kaepernick refused to stand during the national anthem before Friday night's game. Well, some people are calling him shallow, ungrateful. Others, though, are defending his right to stand up or sit Good down. Good afternoon from Washington, D.C. This is the March for Our Lives. Thousands of people stretching all the way from the U.S. Capitol down to the White House on Pennsylvania Avenue. Throughout my campaign for Congress, the most inspiring moments were those acts of protest, large and small, that served as a reminder that our country remains a work in progress, one that depends on committed patriots exercising their right to dissent. Our guests today know about dissent, about standing up for our values. Representative Barbara Lee cast the only vote three days after the 9-11 attacks against the authorization for the use of military force, an act which gave the executive branch a blank check to wage war anytime, anywhere. As a result of her dissenting vote, she endured death threats and required round-the-clock security. Max Rose now serves alongside Congresswoman Lee in Congress. Before that, he served in the U.S. Army. Max has had to live with the consequences of that congressional authorization 18 years ago. He fought and was wounded in Afghanistan, and today sees it as his duty to be a dissenting voice within Congress to stand up for the people he represents. A member of Congress has an incredible ability to earn people's trust, to earn the trust of organizations and key critical actors, and to get people around the table to solve problems outside of the um, legislative space. And I, I intend on using every power available to me to help improve people's lives. Well, including the bully pulpit, you don't shy away from, from controversy. I get the sense that fighting is in your, your blood. You don't shy away from a good fight. And I'm not just talking about your background as a wrestler, your time in the Army. I mean, you get the Dukes up as a member of Congress when you're representing Staten Island. Um, is that just magic? Max Rose's style, or no? I relish it, but the critical thing is, is that it has to come from the right place. 
you can't relish the fight so that you can benefit just your base or just a corporate pack, or just a federal lobbyist, or just a wealthy benefactor. You have to relish the fight for fairness. Um, and when you look mm. at my home, Staten Island and South Brooklyn, for all too long, we, we've just been utterly ignored, utterly ripped off. And that's got to change. And I, I do think that it will take a fight. But it's a, it's a fight against the entire edifice, the entire structure, the entire culture, uh, the entire political class. And I don't intend on shying away from that. You just talked about a fight for fairness. Where does that that abiding desire for fairness come from? Uh, I was blessed to just have an unbelievable upbringing from two parents that were really devoted to family, and especially on my mother's side, devoted to service. My great-grandmother was one of the early female principals in New York City history. My grandmother, teacher up in Harlem. My mother, a community college professor. This is not something I've ever really truly overthought, um, and I think that's important. All too often, we are looking to establish narratives because that simplifies things. This is a part of me in terms of service and, and trying to right injustices wherever they may be um, that I can't truly explain. And I'm sure that's something that that you also identify with. And what's amazing about Congress is that for all the problems that we talk about in terms of the culture in Congress, and it's a culture problem that you you and I have both spoken about extensively because we've seen a, a better culture in the military, a culture where people were able to put their differences aside and focus on something larger than themselves, but focus on the mission at hand. There's a systems problem that we have to really start to consider that nobody is talking about. And it's a systems problem that eats people alive. It's a systems problem that takes someone who has good intentions and uh, morphs them into someone who is just pushing the ball forward in a, in a, in a way that's overly incrementalist. And, and I don't see enough focus on that right now. I recall a campaign event where we were at where you mentioned something that, that I think relates to this, which is the decision to break that gridlock at DOD and get those armored vehicles. Um, remind me where you were injured. I, I was uh, stationed in Kandahar province. Down south. It, it's yep. so funny, man. You know, I, I've now been, I guess, a public figure for a few years talking about military service, but don't you still get that weird feeling in the pit of your stomach whenever you start to talk about your military experience? Like you're like a fraud. I do. Or like I do. A, uh, but and it, you know, uh, sometimes it's like pulling teeth in the job I have now. But I think it's more important than ever that we we relate that experience to what we're doing now. So I'm not going to let you off the hook. I want to. I want to hear it. For every you know person who like you or I who is talking about it, I, I fear that we have another ten. 20 people, vets with even more experience than you and I, yeah. even more skills and talents to bring to the table, who somehow feel as if it is not our role to talk openly about the value of our service, to talk openly mm. about the lessons learned, whether you're a teacher or a diplomat or came from the Peace Corps or came from the military. It is a hurdle that the entire community has to get over. I certainly saw the benefits of 
of the way in which a system can be improved when my vehicle hit an improvised explosive device in uh, Kandahar province um, now six, six years ago. You know, thankfully, my life was never in danger. The lives of the people I was entrusted with leading were never in danger. But we, you know, myself and one other individual was medevac to Kandahar Air Force Base. And I'm lying there in a hospital bed. I'm a little banged up. And I'm informed that five years earlier, I would have died from that very same improvised explosive device. The only reason why my life was saved was because Congress had finally gotten their act together. They'd put hyperpartisanship aside, they put divisiveness aside, they'd put consideration of social media aside, and they decided to allocate the necessary funds to the DOD to equip our vehicles with the extra armor that they needed to push explosions away from their core. So in the case of my striker, what was developed was a double V-hole. And that double V-hole did exactly its job. And at that point, it's just a piece of metal. But that metal, what it symbolized was governmental effectiveness. Uh, And I'm obviously blessed that that happened, that I wasn't, that my vehicle didn't hit that bomb in 04 or 03 when we sent men and women to war without the equipment that they needed. When Donald Rumsfeld said, well, we go to war with the army and the military we have, not the one we wish we did, and sent young men and women off to their death. I'm glad you injected that context because we cannot overlook the whistleblowers, the dissenters within the establishment who who called out what was happening, who highlighted the Marine Corps request for thousands of these armored vehicles and were given just uh, a handful. You know, bureaucracy doesn't move on its own. That congressional effectiveness you speak to wasn't uh, self-generating. It wasn't Congress alone deciding, hey, we're going to do this. It came from advocates quietly operating within the system, uh, dissenting in every way they knew how to move the ball on this. Congress, especially in elected officials as a whole, certainly needs to often reframe its perception of the advocacy community. That's not to say that you always agree with them. That's not to say that you can't have significant intellectual discourse, but there's been a culture in politics, especially in the Democratic Party, where we have treated entities like fully owned subsidiaries. We've often done it to communities of color. We've often done it to union communities. And and the only times in which we acknowledge them, and again, this is a especially true in the Democratic Party, is during election season. And then once we win yet another election, we say, all right, that's fine. Now let's just keep the party rolling. You're going to have to forgive me, Max. I'm going to describe you as a dissenter, as one of those voices sometimes in the wilderness, in the vein of those whistleblowers who got you that armor in Afghanistan, uh, in the vein of others who have stood up against a system that serves the entrenched and ignores those who lack power. And I think your dissenting voice is powerful and only growing. How do you react to that characterization as a member of Congress, so powerful in one sense, but as a dissenter within that system. We are all struggling with how do we continue to be fighters, the fighters and the public servants that we've always felt to be, while at the same time being legislators. At the same time, understanding that we have been entrusted with an incredible responsibility, and we have got to figure out how to concurrently push the ball forward while also remaining true to our principles and our morals and understanding that at times compromise is not okay, understanding that at times you have to stand up and be the lone voice. You know, I think that this is especially true right now for America's uh, military industrial complex as well as our never-ending wars. You know, this September, we will have soldiers enlisting in the United States military 
who were not born on 9-11. And some of them are going to get shipped off to a war that is now nearly two decades old that was catalyzed by an event that occurred before they were even born. Our military budget is likely to eclipse 700 to $750 billion uh, in 2020. We've got to start to stand up and say, you know what? In future years, the military's mission may very well be building a far more efficient uh, military system, a far more efficient military-industrial complex, one that thinks about how we can save money while also upholding our values and keeping the nation safe and preserving global stability. Have you reflected on that as both someone who was injured as a result of that rush to war and now 18 years later, thinking about how to deal with the the aftermath. This all boiled down to classic political pressures and game theory. If you think about every single member of Congress that stood up to cast their vote on the AUMF, what they were thinking about was, look, man, I could vote. If I vote yes for this, then the people will view me as strong. If I vote no on it, though, they will view me as weak. Max, why do you think it is that votes against military action are cast by by the other side as unpatriotic? That, that's that's the Democrats' fault that we let stuff like Same that happen. Wow, that, that's not the Republicans' fault. They they're always going to say things that try to caricature Democrats and politics is politics. But what the Democrats have got to learn, I believe, is that politics is all about trust building. Politics is all about investing from both a messaging as well as a presence standpoint so that when someone tries to assert that you are not patriotic, when someone tries to assert that you're vile or untrustworthy, it only strengthens you because the people know otherwise. And then that prepares you to make the tough decisions. That prepares you to get ahead of the pack, not follow the pack. And I think all too often we've had elected officials that have not made those investments, have not made those investments in the community, so they render themselves susceptible to these overly caricatured, ridiculous propositions that someone isn't patriotic. I, I of course, challenge someone to, to say that I'm not a patriot. I challenge someone to say you're not a patriot. I don't think they would. And the reason why I don't think they would is not because I don't think they, they would think it's it's offensive. I don't think they care about being offensive. But I think that they know that it would not work. They understand that it would only make them look ridiculous. You and I, as, as we continue this conversation about never-ending wars and bloated military budgets, it's not coming from disrespect for uniformed officers. In fact, it's coming out of respect for them. You talk about investing in the community as a, a vehicle for building trust. And I'm pretty sure you're not talking just about dollars. You're talking about knocking on doors and holding town halls and investing your sweat and time in that community as, as much as your wallet. Absolutely. And this is something that is often scoffed at. You know, the Democrats, what do we have now? 48 people running for president? 200, God knows how many. And all of them really are presenting a very similar narrative. And that is that in the face of these uh, very significant problems that we see today, whether the climate change, crumbling infrastructure, skyrocketing inequality, humanitarian crises at the border, all of them incredibly legitimate. But what I think that they're all forgetting is the fact that in the absence of trust, this comes off as elitist, it comes off as trite, and it even comes off as offensive. Because People do not 
trust their elected officials, they don't see them, they're not present, and they don't believe that government can work. Now, in order to do that, though, in order to revive that trust and that faith and that patriotic belief that we'll take that hill as a country, we have to start with the small stuff. We are rebuilding trust in government. We're showing people that the government at all levels, the elected officials, public servants, can actually work to solve problems so that the next time someone talks to them about the 21st Century Apollo Project or the next New Deal or whatever else it might be, they might believe rather than just think you're bullshitting them to win the next election and proceed to ignore them. Well, your approach to politics is unbelievably refreshing. Your approach to patriotism, likewise. This idea that you do it from the heart and patriots are fighters. I love that. From your life experience, what is the greatest act of patriotism you have ever witnessed? I all too often think about the the challenges that we gave our young soldiers in the era of counterinsurgency. I had a a gunner, um, 19-year-old kid, and we, we, this was in this time where no, and rightfully so, no unnecessary civilian casualty was acceptable. And we got this call, you know, on a normal patrol, a couple of guys coming down a mountain uh, with, likely with weapons, go check it out. And we go there and we're about 300 meters away, 200 meters away. And my gunner says, look, I see a couple of guys with weapons, but they're not wearing uniforms, but I think that they're police officers. So I trust him. He's got the best eyes on while also acknowledging that he has every right to respond if he feels in danger. And we get a little closer, we dismount, and it turns out that that's the case. Just a couple of guys, police officers, Afghan, ununiformed police officers going about their day, but nonetheless with weapons. The gunner, young kid, made the right decision. Imagine, though, if he had not. Imagine if, as confirmed by every piece of international and domestic rule of law, he had seen non-uniformed men with weapons and fired off a couple of rounds, killed two Afghan police officers. Six hours later, the entire region would have erupted in protests. Eight hours later, the president of Afghanistan would have been notified of this 19-year-old gunner's mistake. The next day, the president of the United States would have been briefed on his decisions, and cable news across the world would have been covering it, and geopolitics was shifted. But this young gunner, Uh, displayed an unbelievable type of courageous restraint and intellect that will never be covered in the news, will never, you know, grace the front pages of any paper, will likely, if I had never not spoken about, you know, would have just wisped into time. And we have seen instances of that throughout the 21st century of men and women in uniform, both at home and abroad, who have tackled incredible issues of complexity and shown intellect and courage to practice a level of restraint that has, I believe, helped to solve very difficult problems. And we need to use these as examples, as examples for our North Star, for where we can head in all different types of sectors, because the problems that we face are only going to get more challenging. They're only going to get more complex, from healthcare to housing to inequality to infrastructure to global national to global and national security. And speaking to people's true potential and their true patriotism, whether it comes to courage or courageous restraint, I think will help us reach that North Star. We'll be right back after this. Cricket Minis are brought to you by DoorDash. 
What's the one dish from your favorite restaurant that you can never recreate at home? What if someone brought it right to your door? In a previous ad, I mentioned previously I'd recently ordered chicken parmesan and an empanada. Finding same di- same dinner. Here's the thing about here's the thing about rock. Is, is that a dinner? Or is that is one a snack? Here's the thing. Some people uh, some people uh, get to rock bottom and get out. Other people find a nice little hiking hiking trail <laughs> along the bottom of their diet rock bottom. <laughs> and you know who's gonna come meet you there with a bag full of delicious food? DoorDash. DoorDash. <laughs> Ordering is easy. Just use the DoorDash app and choose what you want to eat, and your Dasher will bring it right to you wherever you are. Not only is that burger place you love on DoorDash already, but over 310,000 other amazing restaurants are too. DoorDash connects you with door-to-door delivery in over 3,300 cities and all 50 states across the United States and Canada. Alaska, you're DoorDashing. Hawaii, that's food coming to your face. You know what I mean? Aloha, you'll say, when they bring you a bunch of delicious comestibles. Order from your local go-tos, or choose from your favorite chains like Chipotle, Wendy's, Chick-fil-A, and, and the, the Cheesecake and, and Factory. And the big daddy of them all. The, yeah, the, the, the big boss, the Bowser of the chain restaurants, the Cheesecake Factory. Don't worry about dinner. Let dinner come to you with DoorDash. Right now, our listeners can get $5 off their first order of $15 or more when you download the DoorDash app and enter promo code CROOKEDMINIS. That's $5 off your first order when you download the DoorDash app from the App Store and enter the promo code CROOKEDMINIS. Again, it's CROOKEDMINIS, $5 off your first order from DoorDash. Go for it. Max is a friend and a patriot and a model for what productive dissent can achieve. But he stands on the shoulders of giants, like Congresswoman Barbara Lee, who has served her constituents for over 20 years, and in the days after 9-11 cast that fateful, solitary vote against the forever war in which our country is now mired. September 11th changed the world. Our deepest fears now haunt us. Yet I am convinced that military action will not prevent further acts of international terrorism against the United States. However difficult this vote may be, some of us must say, let's step back for a moment, let's just pause just for a minute and think through the implications of our actions today so that this does not spiral out of control. Congresswoman Lee, it is an honor to have you on the show. I I think it's no exaggeration to say that you are a living profile in courage. Are you reminded of that vote often, especially now as we hear the drumbeats of war once again um, with respect to Iran coming from this administration? I'm glad to be with you, Ken, and I'm reminded of that vote each and every day, but I am haunted by what has transpired in the last 18 years because I wish it had not been true that it was a blank check that set the stage really for perpetual war. That uh, authorization has been used over 40 times in, I think it's 18 countries, and this is according to a declassified report by the Library of Congress. It's been used in Yemen, Somalia, Libya, Syria, you name it. It's also been used for Guantanamo and for wiretapping in uh, the United States. And so it was uh, 60 words, and it was just a broad blank check to give any president, Republican or Democrat, the authorization to go to war. And what I'm trying to do now is repeal that authorization and get it off the books. Did you ever imagine going into that vote that 18 years later we would be where we are? I mean, your vote was prophetic in a lot of ways, but I would imagine you were thinking worst case scenario. Did you think it would actually happen? 
I read the resolution. It was 60 words, and I knew that uh, giving any executive branch, any president, this kind of broad authorization, that they would use it. And that's what I worried about, and that's what I said, that it was overly broad. It had no targeted uh, timetable, no region designated. I mean, all it said was any nation, organization, individual, uh, or associated forces connected to 9-11. I mean, come on, you can make a case for anybody or any country being connected to 9-11 whenever you want to. And that's what all presidents up until now, and and of course this president, has done. And so it's really um, time to, to repeal that, and I was very pleased that we were able to put the repeal of that after many, many years of my trying into the Defense Appropriations Bill, which we passed off of the floor a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, I saw that. I saw that, and, and let's cross our fingers on seeing that make it over the finish line. But I'm wondering, 18 years ago, when you were faced with this decision, did you know going into it that you were going to be alone, the only one? Well, quite frankly, I didn't think much about it, really, because I knew that that was the wrong vote. For A yes vote would be the wrong vote for me to cast based on my background, my understanding of the Constitution, my conscience, and what I thought would be a very dangerous vote. And so I struggled with that vote because, of course, we were in the midst of the horrific anger and mourning and grieving of the lives that were lost in 9-11. And, and I, for one, was personally connected to someone who was on Flight 93, a flight attendant who was the cousin of my chief of staff. Her name was Wanda Green. And so I was very upset also about that. And what happened with so many people and so many families and so many friends who have yet to recover from that, that terrible, terrible moment. And so... That was not the time to put forth this resolution. And I said that. We needed to step back. We needed to think through the implications of what we were doing and be rational in our response and understand the implications of what we would do so it wouldn't spiral out of control. And so I didn't think whether or not I would be the only one. When I looked up and saw that one red button pushed on the screen, it was interesting, to say the least. My colleagues tried to get me to change that vote because they knew that would be the end of my political career and also they were worried about my safety because it was a very dangerous moment. But for me, you know, and I think for everyone, you come to those moments in your life where you know you have to do the right thing regardless. You described it just now as a dangerous vote, and, and I know what you mean. It was dangerous for the country. It's it's dangerous for the the proper separation of powers, but it was also personally dangerous. You received tens of thousands of angry letters and some death threats. I received horrible communications from so many people. I had to have security for many months. It was a very uh, scary time, but also I have to just say, I received emails and letters and phone calls from people around the world who were supportive, including Bishop Tutu, for example, Mrs. Coretta Scott King. I, I received a letter from Rosa Parks, a handwritten letter from her. And so when you look at um, what happened in terms of the reaction, yes, there were over 60,000, mind you, contacts with me, but 
I would say probably 50% were supportive. And in fact, those those documents and records are at my alma mater, Mills College. And I would encourage anyone who would like to review the kind of hatred and and vitriolic anger and the terrible reaction of some people toward me to go to Mills College and read some of those documents. I have to say, just recently, I was in South Carolina, and I met this one man, this white man, who has some children. And he told me he was one of those who, and his father... And his mother, they were so angry at me. He said that he had to communicate some very horrible things to me. And he came up to me with tears in his eyes and he apologized. And he said to me, you know, you were right. And we understand why you did it. And we're very sorry that we reacted the way we did. And I've had many, many people come up and tell me that. Have any of your colleagues, any of those representatives who bear the the burden of casting that vote, had similar conversations with you? Because they haven't paid the highest price for that vote. It's the people on the front lines. They have, in many ways, communicated to me their support, and maybe they agreed or disagreed with what I, uh, how I voted. But they certainly were, right away, many of them surrounded me and said, look, you know, we're going to be with you regardless of whether we agree with you or not. And uh, several have said, we should have voted, I should have voted with you. And this was a public comment from Congressman John Lewis, who really came forth in a week or two right after I voted no and said, you know, I, I should have been, I should have voted no, I should have been with Barbara on that. But that was a terrible time. People were emotional, and members of Congress have feelings also. And I didn't blame anyone for not voting, and I never, ever said anything negative or condemned members for voting for it. But I knew what I had to do and how I had to defend my vote and had to work hard to win re-election. And I uh, won, but I had opponents. One um, woman who was running against me went to New York and marched in, a, I think it was a Veterans Day parade, with a sign with me smiling with the World Trade Towers uh, burning in the background saying, uh, Barbara Lee hates America, and she was marching with Giuliani then. I mean, it was just disgusting, really. So I had to take a lot of crap, if you know what I mean. But I know uh, what you mean. <laughs> but, you know, you have to just stand and let all hell break loose and just keep standing. We'll be right back after these messages. Crooked Meanies are brought to you by Quip. Packing your toiletries somehow always involves a delicate game of stacking and space hacking. And don't get us started on lotion exploding all over our dop kits. Ooh. Don't even get us started. Yeah, we're done. Ugh, we're don't even don't even dop kit us before we've had our coffee. Don't coffee us before we've had our dop kit. You know what I mean? Don't get us started. What the fuck are you talking about? Got a about? case of the Mondays. Quip three-month battery life will last through a season filled with weekends away. They're making it easier than ever to keep up with your wake-up and wind-down routine when you're out of the office. Quip is one of the first electric toothbrushes accepted by the ADA. They're backed by over 25,000 dental professionals and have thousands of verified five-star reviews. The new kids brush the same as the original version, just tweak for size down faces. Kids are inspired to brush better and more often with oral care that looks and feels like the product adults in their lives use. They're proud to use Quip, help them develop a grown-up routine without childish gimmicks. We love Quip. Everybody here at Crooked is using Quip. Oh, at the same time, people come in, they all start using their Quips. It's great. I, it's a great. It is really great to travel with. The travel cover is also what you leave to have it next to your, your home sink, your home base sink, you know? 
It's a great product. Love Quip. Quip starts at just $25, and if you go to getquip.com, that's G-E-T-Q-U-I-P.com slash Crooked Minis right now, you can get your first refill pack for free. That's your first refill, that's your first refill pack free at G-E-T-Q-U-I-P.com slash Crooked Minis. Getquip.com slash Crooked Minis. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Where do you think that that strain in American politics comes from, where we associate the questioning of military force and the decision to go to war with questioning patriotism itself? Because it, your, your patriotism was questioned. Your love of country was challenged as a result of that vote. You know, uh, Ken, it was very curious to me because I realized then, which I really hadn't thought about before, that a lot of Americans do not understand that what the Constitution requires, and that's the dissent, and that's part of our democracy. If you don't agree, you don't always have to go with the flow. That's supposed to be the beauty of democracy, that you can offer a different point of view. And I offered a different point of view, and so many people did not think that even in a moment of crisis like this, I offered a different point of view, and they thought that I should be just unified with George Bush and the rest of the country and the rest of the members of Congress in in going to war. And to me, that was very interesting and eye-opening because I realized that a lot of people don't know that dissent is central to our democracy. And, you know, in my district, we always say that peace is patriotic. And so, yeah, peace is patriotic. And if you want to restrain this country from going to war and, and looking at alternatives to war, to seek peace, I mean, I think that's the highest form of patriotism because I am not going to send our young men and women into harm's way unless it's absolutely the last resort. And I have to well, say also that my dad who was a lieutenant colonel in the Army, retired 25 years. I'm an Army brat. He was my first call, and he told me, he was retired, and he told me, look, that was the absolute right vote. Do not send our troops in harm's way. You showed your patriotism. Stand and don't let people back you off of this because, you know, the troops deserve your support, and they deserve you to look out for them and do not do, you know, anything that is not required, but do what is necessary. But you can't do this and and authorize them to go to war in three days. Right. Well, I wanted to get to that because not only is is peace patriotic, it's pro-military because the military bears the brunt of these bad decisions to to go to war. And you know that as a military brat. This wasn't the vote of a pacifist. This was the vote of a conscientious dissenter who saw what might happen if things spiraled out of control. And look at what has happened to our troops. I mean, my God, the rate of suicides uh, off the scale. PTSD, 
off the scale. We have a funded mental health services and their their recovery from these wars that like we should have. And so in many ways, we've abandoned them and they did everything that we asked them to do. And so I'm on the Appropriations Committee and every dime I can find to support our veterans and their needs and their families' needs, I'm, I fight really hard for our veterans because uh, it is just really a shame and disgrace that, you know, they serve our country, do everything we ask them to do, and then they come back to a country that abandons them. Well, Congresswoman, what is the the greatest act of patriotism that you've ever witnessed? That's a very hard question to answer because I have witnessed our troops going into harm's way during Vietnam, for example. I have witnessed our young men and women coming home and becoming homeless because their country has abandoned them. And I have witnessed and knew my dad went to war. He was in the 92nd Infantry in Italy supporting the Normandy invasion, came home to a segregated country where he couldn't even buy a house for my mother and, and his family in a community where he wanted to live, which incidentally I represent now. But anyway, I think those are acts of patriotism that we have to really honor and acknowledge because these people have put their lives on the line, these vets and these troops, and then they come home and their country does not uh, serve them well. How in God's name has Associated Forces, which, by the way, isn't even in the AUMF language, how has that come to include Iran? It just doesn't, even though this administration and this president seem to say that the 2001 authorization uh, gives them that kind of authority. And then I understand he said today that it doesn't matter, really. He's going to talk to Congress, but if he wants to do what he wants to do, he's going to do it anyway. So we've got to put a check on this administration. We actually formed a no war with Iran caucus. You know, I introduced legislation to say that we're going to, nothing in the appropriations bill authorizes the use of force in Iran, and we're going to beat this drum really loud on Capitol Hill and try to keep this president in check because this administration is is out of control in many ways, and they don't respect three branches of government. They don't respect Congress's constitutional responsibility to to authorize the use of force. And so we have to uh, raise our voices loud and we have to hit the streets and we have to encourage the public to rise up and to speak out like we did during Iraq and to say enough is enough. We're war weary and we're not going to let this president go to war with Iran because it would be devastating not only for the region but for the entire planet. I could not agree more. Thank you so much, Congresswoman Lee. It's been uh, been an honor to have you on. Thank you, and thank you for doing this. It's important, I think, that the public understand we're at another defining moment, and let your members of Congress know in no uncertain term that they should tell them to support our efforts to put a check on this president, uh, because this is a democracy. It's not a dictatorship. Thank you, Congresswoman Lee, for being a true profile in courage. Next week, I sit down with General Stan McChrystal and retired Master Sergeant Mike Washington to look at the role that reckoning plays in our current and historical understanding of patriotism. I saw our country in Afghanistan and in Iraq, even more in Iraq, make a series of mistakes that were 
startlingly remind, reminded me of uh, mistakes made in and around Vietnam. Never exactly the same, but pretty similar. And you say, well, how in the world could that happen? Thank you to Jacob Zients and Chris Marvin for production assistance. Sean Cherry was our studio booker. Daniel Carissimi is our editor. Thank you to Jeff Gates, Charlie, and the House Recording Studio for engineering this week. Till next time. McDonald's presents Burger Reviews by Hamburglar. Today's review, the hotter, juicier, classic burgers. Mr. Hamburglar. Bravo, bravo. He said, of all the McDonald's burgers I've ever hamburgled, these are the hottest, juiciest, and tastiest. Bravo. Hurry in and enjoy one of our 350 bundles, like a daily double and small fries for a limited time. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any of the offer comparison of prior classic burgers. ba ba ba